wrestling fans, welcome to another edition of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you this uh, mid-September early evening? Oh, it, uh, you know, we're talking we're talking Gulf Coast today, if I'm, I'm correctly. I feel for the last few days that I've been living in the Gulf Coast with this it's weather we've been having up here. Yeah, so I think you got sad. the you got the remnants of uh, the hurricane. Yeah, and the from humidity and the, uh, yeah. yeah, my uh, mom. I was talking with my mom this morning, who lives on Long Island, and she was saying uh, my sister and her husband are actually up at the uh, casino in Connecticut celebrating their uh, wedding anniversary, and yeah. that because the weather is so bad, they probably weren't going to be able to drive home today. So they're going to be stuck at a casino an extra day. Poor things. Ah, at Mohegan or Foxwoods? Or I they believe do. they're at Foxwoods, That's but I'm not nice. sure. It's interesting, though, because their honeymoon, they got married um, 20, this is their 22nd wedding anniversary. Their honeymoon, they were also forced to stay at a casino longer than planned because they were in Las Vegas on September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so they, they had to say, I, interestingly enough, and I might have said this before, I, was, I had been up for the wedding. I was supposed to fly out Monday afternoon, but it had been raining that afternoon. My flight got canceled, and I was put on a Tuesday morning flight out of oh. LaGuardia. We were on the Jeez. one way waiting to take off when 9-11 happened. I was stranded. Uh, I stayed with my family, my mom and my stepdad. I stayed ah. at their house for another six days before I could get out of New York. Wow. Wow. I don't know if I've ever heard that story from you. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, wild. I mean, it was, you know, we had no idea what was going on, and we eventually got back to the uh, terminal, and then they slowly but surely forced everyone out onto the street. Nobody's cell phone was working, and not everybody had yeah. cell phones in those days. So I finally was able to uh, borrow someone's cell phone to get a hold of my parents. Um, the the drive, uh, the Long Island Expressway was closed. So we had huh. to take the service road. And for those of you that don't know what that, that is, it's basically a normal street that runs parallel to the mm -hmm. Long Island Expressway. But there are traffic lights. It, it, it's a normal street. Yeah. Um, it, what normally would have taken us probably 25, 30 minutes, took us a little under three hours Oof. to drive that back. And then, uh, every day the airlines would publish flight schedules for the following day, but they wouldn't know until the morning of when the FAA uh, would give them yeah. the all clear or not. So every day I was rebooked for a flight leaving the next day, but we would have to get up early and call to find out if they were going or not. Oh man. Yeah. Oh. So what's a little rain compared to <laughs> yeah, that? That's your 9-11 memories. <laughs> now that I've brought everybody down. <laughs> this month, we are supposed to be talking about Gulf Coast Championship <laughs> Wrestling and not being stranded in New York with your parents. Uh, but we're going to talk about Gulf Coast in 1971. Uh, this is the time and place where a wonder boy became the king of wrestling for the first time. There were also hippies, cowboys, and jackets. And we'll talk about all of those and a whole lot more. 
We'll also have all our regular features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, This Month I Learned, and we kick things off with Stuff John Bought Me Off eBay. So this month, John bought me several issues of... I guess it's a comic book, although if it came out today, we'd probably call it a graphic novel. But these are comics. um, They were published, I believe, in Colombia. And the star is El Santo. And Mm. they're called Santo, El Unmascarado de Plata, which I believe is the the silver mask. Ah. I think. Because Brazo de Oro and Brazo de Plata were one was silver, one was was gold. So, John, tell us what you know about these uh, El Santo comic books. I know nothing. Zero, zilch, nada. Okay, well, then uh, it's good. I did a little research, but... I I saw these, and I I, I saw one of them on sale uh, for a lot of money. I was like, oh, this is really cool, but this is two and a half to three times more than we want to spend on this. Then I somehow stumbled upon this lot of them for much less money. So I just immediately pulled the trigger, boom, bought it now. These these are worn. You. These are, you know, definitely in used condition to to yep. you know be conservative. I did a little yes. research and there are several lots of varying sizes available for purchase on eBay or Amazon and the pricing varies greatly. Uh what yes. I learned about <laughs> them, as I mentioned, they're published in Colombia. And on some of them, there are prices listed not only for Colombia, but also Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia. The publisher was Jose G. Cruz, who seems to be a pretty well-known writer of Mexican comics. And he also eventually became a publisher. And this series, Santo El Mascarado de Plata, reportedly ran for over 30 years. Oh, wow. Uh, and it is, uh, it's, it's all in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish. So, uh, but there are images, you know, it's, it's you know, hand drawn, but it almost looks like photographs. It's very realistic looking. I'll post some images on Twitter. But, you know, it's like a serialized story involving El Santo uh, fighting off bad guys, romancing women, and uh, just getting into various uh, escapades and exploits. Oh, cool. I'd love to see the, the interior of these, like the, the auction that I, 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 I pulled the trigger on just had a photo of the three covers. So I'd love to see the interiors. Yeah, I hope you, they're, I hope they're really, yeah, they're really cool. And in cool. quite a few of them, he seems to be romancing uh ladies so so there you go aside of el santo you didn't know existed so as i mentioned uh i'll post some images on twitter at al gets wrestling before we get started john we we try and acknowledge uh when wrestlers pass away uh sadly it happens often enough that we don't catch them all but recently in in the span of a little over 24 hours we lost terry funk Yep. And then really shockingly, the next day, Bray Wyatt. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, Terry was in so many ways a, a part of so many important moments in wrestling history and so many changes in wrestling history. And he really adapted to them well. Uh, he 
uh, he and Dory and his brother were one of the first to see um, the future for wrestling territories mm-hmm. was not good. So, uh, uh, and even though they had a willing buyer, they actually tried to talk Blackjack and Murdoch <laughs> out of out yeah. of buying it. They said, "No, don't, trust me, that you don't idea. want it." But they insisted, uh, and yeah. the, that didn't fare very well for them. Um, you know, looking at what he did in Japan with FMW and then ECW and just really was so malleable and adaptable and could could mm-hmm. really do it all. Yeah, he just even even if you want to look before, you know, up, up until his first retirement, you know, even that even if you just look at that part of his career what he adapted to do just from being like the you know the the young little brother dory's little brother to becoming you know ascending to becoming nwa champion and you know like just all that just all the transformation he made during that short period of time that 20 that 20 years you know yeah that short period of his career which (laughs) lasted 20 years only two retirements yeah and so just even if you just look at that that's so impressive And, Uh, and yeah and then uh Bray Wyatt, I believe he was 39. And Maybe just, even younger. Was uh, he even younger? Incredibly, incredibly young, whatever the number yeah, was. Yeah. Just really a sad story that uh, apparently uh, had complications from uh, an existing heart condition that were yeah. exacerbated by catching COVID. Yeah. Um, let's see. He was born in 87. So 36th. Oof, Jesus! Not the oh, yeah, God, thirty-six that's, years old. That's wild. Yeah, well, and so 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 sad. So and so like yeah, four and especially kids. coming coming oh. the day after Funk, that was just you know just just hit me like a brick. Yep, yep. It was it was two two shots to the gut. Two yeah, day, yeah. and of course uh, he's part of a family tree that uh, you know dates back to the era we cover at charting the territories Mm -hmm. with uh, the Mulligan slash Wyndham and also the Rotunda family. And, uh, and then I also, and a lot of people didn't realize this, but it sort of came out in all this, that uh, his wife, Jojo is uh, the daughter of Jose Offerman, former major league baseball player. Huh? Did not know that. Yeah. Huh? Wow. Wow. Huh. I believe daughter, uh, definitely a uh, close relative, um, but yes. Yeah, yeah huh. small world. So uh, uh, rest in peace, uh, our condolences to the family and friends of Terry Funk yes. and Bray Wyatt. Of course, a lot of current pro wrestlers were were very close with Bray, you know, not only yeah. in the WWE, but also AEW and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So to all uh, my my friends in the wrestling community now, uh, you know, that, that we're close with Bray, uh, my my condolences for your loss. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Bobby Shane this month. Of course, uh, another one whose life was taken at uh, a way, way too young age. Uh, there's a profile of Shane on our website, chartingtheterritories.com, as part of a year in the life where we do a comprehensive look at Gulf Coast in 1971. There's also a profile of the team of Frank Martinez and Carl von Stroheim, who first came here under masks as the Untouchables, but during the course of their run, they unmasked and wrestled under those names. And these profiles are written by the prolific 
David Gibb, who recently released yet another free story on his website, aceyourcomeback.com. This one, titled Take All Comers, is a wrestling story set in Alabama in the early 1930s. He's got some other short stories available on the site, plus you can order his book, How to Ace Your Comeback, which we've reviewed in the past on this podcast. Now, the story, Take All Comers, is set in what I believe to be a fictitious town of Abbotsville, Alabama. But I don't think David came up with that name completely out of thin air. John, is there another literary work that mentions the fictitious uh, locale of Abbotsville, Alabama? What is To Kill a Mockingbird, Al? (laughs) That is correct. I don't believe it's a major part of the story, but I believe there's some references to Abbotsville. I, I, I think I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in school, but I'm old, so that was a long time ago. If I will, if I could take... Uh, fictional towns for 800 (laughs) uh the answer would be what is macom alabama which i believe is the main town in to kill a mockingbird all right so (laughs) so yeah so i have a feeling that uh david being a a writer uh was looking for a a fictitious town and uh recalled his incredible memory of uh, to kill a mockingbird and came uh, up with yeah. Abbotsville, Alabama. So it's a fun little read about a uh, uh, the old-time grandstand challenge type deal. Um, uh, and as I mentioned, it's free for reading on the site, aceyourcomeback.com. So Abbotsville, Alabama is fictitious, but the Alabama cities of Mobile and Dothan are all too real. And they were both weekly stops for Gulf Coast in 1971. So here's a look at all the towns they ran, all the known regular towns that they ran and what the weekly loop was like. It did, a couple of towns changed midway through the year. So we're going to look at the beginning of the year. On Mondays, they ran Laurel, Mississippi and Panama City, Florida. Tuesdays, they ran one show we know of in Meridian, Mississippi. They probably ran another one, which most likely would have been in Florida or Alabama. On Wednesdays, they ran Mobile, Alabama. It's possible at times they ran a second show, or they may also have done some of their midweek TVs on Wednesday. Thursdays, house shows in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and Crestview, Florida. Fridays, Dothan, Alabama, and Pascagoula, Mississippi. Saturdays, Gulfport, Mississippi, and Quincy, Florida. And Sundays, they definitely ran a weekly show in Pensacola. It's not a full crew. So typically when we see that, we think, well, there probably was another show. But if that were the case, it would have been on the Mississippi end of the territory. And I don't believe they could run Mississippi on Sundays. Uh, As we've talked about in the past, a lot of the states, particularly in the South, um, wouldn't let you, wouldn't let businesses open on Sundays or let you run events on Sundays. I know the Culkins, who promoted for Leroy McGurk, they ran house shows almost every night of the week, but they did not run on Sundays. So my, my guess is they couldn't. And in this case, they probably ran some of their TV tapings on Sundays and the crew that didn't work in Pensacola were possibly bopping around doing the TVs because this territory ran five or six different 
TV tapings each and every week. <laughs> wow. So this isn't they do one <laughs> taping and then bicycle it around with new local promos. This is each town has their own town-specific wow. television. And those six markets were Dothan, um, the Mobile slash Pensacola market, Panama City, the Biloxi slash Gulfport market, the Hattiesburg slash Laurel market, and the Meridian Mississippi market. Now, you'll notice that some of those markets have more than one town that they ran weekly. So let's talk about, for example, Mobile and Pensacola. Based off just one TV show, they had to plug the weekly Wednesday night cards in Mobile and the Sunday night cards in Pensacola. You know, we talked, uh, yeah, we talked about how Mike LaBelle uh, ran yeah. multiple weekly towns in LA, but in that case, the main focus was the Olympic and the other towns in that market really didn't get a lot of publicity on the TV. Here, both Mobile and Pensacola are major cities. In fact, they're the two largest cities by population in the whole territory. Hmm. So it's probably what they probably did was something similar to what John and I experienced growing up watching the WWF in New York, where the same TV would have promo local promos not only for the Garden, but also for the Nassau Coliseum and for, yep. at that point, the Meadowlands in East Rutherford. All those venues were run about once a month. So in any given week of TV, they're probably plugging two of them. So during one commercial break, you'll get Mean Gene bringing out the guys to do local promos for the garden. And then two commercial breaks later, you have him bringing out the guys talking about what's going on at the Coliseum. So it's an interesting balance because they're using the same core crew of wrestlers but they can't have the same matches going on in each town. And, and they really have mm -hmm. to balance the focus. You know, Cowboy Bob Kelly might be the focus in Mobile. And because of that, they might have Ken Lucas or Dick Dunn in the main event in Pensacola. So that each city has something different to plug. Same thing happens in Gulfport and Pascagoula, which are in the same market. And also Hattiesburg and Laurel, which are in the same market. As a matter of fact, the Hattiesburg newspaper not only ran the ads for Hattiesburg, but also for Laurel. So again, it's just a, a very delicate balance booking-wise because you have to give fans in that same general area a reason to go to their mm -hmm. house show. And if the, if the fans in Laurel see a, a loaded card for Hattiesburg and they're getting scraps, <laughs> they, might, they might not, they won't go to yeah. either. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see how they sort of ran that balance. And and we're also talking about, you know, shows in Mississippi and also in uh, the Florida Panhandle in Alabama. In many ways, those two ends of the territory were different. Similar to how Goulas was running things right before the split with Jarrett, where Jarrett had his core crew, Lawler, you know, Tommy Rich, so on and so forth. And Goulas had his guys that mostly worked the eastern end of the territory, Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham, while Jarrett's guys worked Memphis, Evansville, and Louisville. Uh, and to the point that they eventually split in 1977. It's kind of the same thing here. A lot of the guys, like in a given calendar week, most of the wrestlers are working in towns on both ends of the territory. 
but there are some guys that are more focused on one end or the other. Um, guys like Ken Lucas and Dick Dunn and the Monroes, I think are more folk and the wrestling pro and also Tarzan Baxter are more booked on the Florida, Alabama side. Whereas Cowboy Bob Kelly, Frank Dalton are more on the Mississippi side for much of 1971. And you can see this in the rankings on a year in the life at chartingtheterritories.com because unlike all the territories I've done to date, in this one, I split them up by the Mississippi end and the Alabama slash Florida end. And I came up with top 10 rankings for each side and only three wrestlers appeared in the rankings on both. And that was Bobby Shane, Prince Pullins, and Ken Lucas. So you can see that each side sort of had their own mini crew made out of the whole crew. But like I said, in a given week, guys are going to be working in all parts of the territory. It's kind of similar to Georgia Championship Wrestling, John, which we talked about early in the year because Fred Ward uh, ran his towns, which were Macon, Columbus, and Albany, separately from the shows uh, around Atlanta. He had his own TV. Um, he had his own feuds, his own angles, and even his own titles. Yeah. But he's using the same crew. Plus, he's using his uh, son or son-in-law, uh, Leon Ogle, and local area legend, Choo Choo Lin. Whereas <laughs> Atlanta is also bringing in more outside guys for the big shows in the in Atlanta itself. Yeah. And then using the core crew for running the burbs around Atlanta. And next month, when we cover East Texas, we're, we're going to see that there's basically three separate wings to that territory. Oof. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Looking at the roster for Gulf Coast in 1971, there are a lot of guys who spent a good portion of their careers in Gulf Coast. Um, by all accounts, it was a great territory to work. The drives were relatively short. The pay was reportedly really good, and uh, the climate was optimal. Uh, certainly a much better climate than if you're working in Stampede, but at the same <laughs> time, also a much milder summer than if you're working in Florida. Championship wrestling from Florida with Miami and Tampa, you know, and all that. So year-round, the weather is just fantastic. The drives are short, so you can go out on the you can go out on the, most of the wrestlers lived on the Florida panhandle. You go out on the beach, 10 o'clock in the morning, get some sun for a couple hours, go back inside, shower, change, and uh, hit the road to the next town. So there's not uh, there's a lot of guys that that spent most of their careers here. But of course, there are always some surprises, some names you didn't realize worked in Gulf Coast. And that's one of my favorite things is uh, seeing guys you didn't expect uh, in places you didn't expect them. So we're going to run down the roster and we're going to start with the main eventers. As always, these use our exclusive spot rating statistics, which measure a wrestler's average position on the cards. So the main event baby faces were Cowboy Bob Kelly, Prince Pullins, and hippie Mike Boyette. <laughs> hey, talk about guys just spending their careers there for the most part. Bob Kelly, Cowboy Bob Kelly, one of those guys. Um, and just like, like he's a guy like the wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, who we talked about in detail a few years ago. Not huge names on a national level, but on a regional level about as big as you could get um 
they had a great friendship with Lee Fields through the years. I'm just, just paraphrasing, but he's quoted as saying, like, the two people I was luckiest to meet in my life were my wife and Lee Fields. And one of his Lee Fields side hustles was owning and running the Mobile International Speedway, which is a racetrack. And one of Cowboy Bob Kelly's pastimes was that of a of a race car driver. Uh, and uh, the Mobile International Speedway for like 18 years, I think, ever since Lee Fields' death, would have a Lee Fields classic. I think the last one was 2019. I don't know if they've done one post-COVID. Um, oh, another another Mobile International Speedway fun fact is that they, one of the scenes from the first Final Destination was filmed uh, <laughs> at the Mobile International Speedway. Uh, yeah, Cowboy Bob Kelly came in third place in my Twitter poll of favorite Cowboy Bobs <laughs> in wrestling. Uh, Cowboy Bob Orton came in first, Cowboy Bob Ellis in second, and sadly, Cowboy Bob Kelly far behind in, in third place. That's a damn shame. Yeah. Um, Prince Pullins, we talked about in the past trying to figure out the earliest example of a black wrestler working as a heel in the South. And of course, it depends on what your definition of the South is, because they show up in Texas earlier than than other places. But I think we have a contender here. Prince Pullins turned heel. We listed him on the babyface side, but he came in for a few months in the summer and then towards the end of the year turned heel. So in 1971 in Mississippi in Alabama, you have a, a black man wrestling as a heel might be one of the really early examples of that in, in what we would consider to be the South. Yeah. He's in bed. Generally speaking, Prince Pullins is a guy you don't, you know, when people are going through their, their list of, of, of black wrestlers in the territorial era, you, you don't hear him mentioned a lot for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know why I associate him generally more with like the Midwest and Dick, the bruiser than Gulf coast. I, I, huh, it's, yeah, I think he just didn't get around as much yeah. as other wrestlers. Like, like you said, he was mostly limited to that, that region. I think, you know, working for Dick, the bruiser might've at some point worked for the Sheik. Uh, yep. And, uh, you know, aside from this run here, he's not working all over the place and just doesn't get out there as looks much great. as the others. Yeah. It looks like a million bucks. Full name, Calvin Coolidge. Pullins. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And now, so Pullins, I mentioned, turned heel during the year. Hippie Mike Boyette, who we'll talk more about later on in this podcast, he actually turned babyface during the year. He came in a year before as a heel and in early 1971 had a big babyface turn. And so that's why he's on the babyface side. So Kelly, Pullins, and Boyette. On the heel side, our main eventers are... Bobby Shane, Don Fargo, Johnny Fargo, who's a young Greg Valentine, and Terry Garvin. Mm. It's funny. Fargo's book, which is a must read, highly recommend Don Fargo's book. He mentions his brief time in the service. He was in the Marines in 47. Uh, doesn't go into much detail about it. He says he doesn't like to talk about his time, time, time and time in the service, which Immediately, your you know, your mind starts racing. Horrible visions of young Don Colt, you know, things happening to him in the Korean War, and him trying to forget about them and all that. Um, but that's not what happened. He was actually discharged from the Marines uh, after six months 
<laughs> following some time spent in the brig at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Uh, much like fits into everything we know about Don Fargo <laughs> for his entire life. Oh, yeah. And much like the Sheik, Ed Farhat, Fargo lied about his birth date, saying he was born in 1928 rather than 1930. But what actually led to his getting the boot were the charges, and I found this on the discharge slip, was undesirable disposition and general unfitness. <laughs> Which made him perfect for professional wrestling. It's perfect, right? Undesirable disposition and general unfitness. I love it. In uh, in October of 71, Gulf Coast ran a tournament to determine the opponent for Dory Funk Jr., who was going to come in and defend the world title. As part of the storyline, Fargo was barred from entering the tournament for having done something heinous the week before. So he worked under a hood as Mr. D. And here's where it gets interesting. The newspaper ads made it very clear that it was Don Fargo. Um, they would say Mr. D and then in parentheses, alias Don Fargo, even though the TV storyline was that they didn't know for sure who, that it was him. They suspected it was him, but they, you know, uh, and they actually did a deal where if he would be unmasked and revealed to be Fargo, he'd be suspended. Um, and Cowboy Bob Kelly then offered all of his opponents in the tournament, all of Fargo's opponents in the tournament, a $500 cash bonus if they would unmask him during the match. <laughs> That's cool. I love and that. And of course, as it turns out, Fargo ends up winning the tournament and getting the shot against Dory Funk Jr. And this was Dory's only appearance in the territory during the year. They went the full 60 minutes with each man winning one fall and then the time limit expiring before the match could end. So... Don Fargo under a mask as Mr. D took Dory Funk Jr. to the time limit. Yeah, I, I, I bet you weren't uh, betting on me having a fun fact about Terry Garvin. <laughs> um, but I was trying to I was trying to find something something light about Terry Garvin. He was a member of the ancient and honorable order of turtles. Have you heard about this? This. This organization, the Secret uh, Society. The, the only mem the only organization <laughs> I knew he was a member of was Nambla. Uh, so this uh, this is go on go on with this. I thought you were gonna go Flo and Eddie. Um <laughs> the they are a self-described honorable drinking fraternity composed of I guess that would be a fraternal organization if ladies and gentlemen are involved. Who knows? Uh gentlemen of the highest morals and good character who are never vulgar. So I learned I learned that from one of so his obituaries. Terry Garvin, and I'm going to assume he was trying to recruit Don Fargo to join that esteemed <laughs> organization with his high high uh, esteem standing as well. Yes, probably. Oh yeah, you know we we try and avoid talk about Terry and Grizzly and Bob Sweetan yeah. on this podcast. Their yeah. names come up every now and then. You know, our listeners, you know the deal, and so the less said about them, the better. But yeah, that's a, a an interesting factoid about a wrestler that perhaps you didn't know about. Yes. Um, uh, the upper mid-carders on the babyface side, Don Carson, Ken Lucas, Frank Dalton, Bobby Fields, and Dick Dunn. I, uh, it's amazing, especially guys in this territory who would go on uh, to work in law enforcement, either during or after their careers. Don Carson, I think, was the sergeant for the 
Bradley County's Sheriff Department in Cleveland, Tennessee. Dick Dunn also became involved in law enforcement, the sheriff in southern Alabama. Interesting Dick Dunn anecdote I found, I discovered while researching for, for this, this month's episode I'd never heard before. Uh, happened years before in the early in morning 1961 hours. in Nashville. 1960. Yes. <laughs> about this? Go for it. Oh, I know all about it. Oh, so <laughs> bartender Melvin Crutcher at the snack bar in Nashville, Tennessee, opened fire on a group of three wrestlers, killing wrestler Joe Costello and injuring wrestlers J.B. Garrett, better known as Billy Garrett, half of the Billy Garrett Jim Star interns, and Richard Demonbrum. I can't pronounce his last name, but it's a cool last name. Uh, yeah, I think known it's just Dick Demon Dunn. Braun. But Demon I'm, Braun? I'm not sure. D-E-M-O-N-B-R-A-U-N. Yeah. Uh, oh, the paper I found is like B-R-E-U-E, a mess of E's in you. Mm. We'll call him Demon Braun. Uh, better known as Dick Dunn. Uh, Crutcher claimed self-defense and was ultimately acquitted. Um, there are quite a few news, news articles about this case and some great photos of like a nervous looking Melvin Crutcher and his wife at the trial. Um, I'd love to get get them together and post them on a thread on Twitter or, yeah. or X as and, it is. Uh, it's, gonna be inter- it's really interesting. This establishment, uh, you called it the snack bar. It's actually it was a what they called a mixing bar which in Tennessee in the early 60s was the only way uh, you could drink in a public establishment. You had to bring your own alcohol. And they had the mixers. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I think Tennessee was dry, or at least parts of Tennessee, including Davidson County, would have been dry in the early 1960s. Wow. Uh, yeah, Crutcher uh, had, had claimed self-defense and was acquitted. Uh, he said the men w- had been threatening him and causing yeah. a ruckus. Uh, so interesting that Dunn later went into law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. G- given that a uh, couple of decades earlier, he seemed to be on the other side <laughs> of yes. things. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Carson. And we talked about this last month. I find it fascinating that Carson was in Southern California in 1970, yeah. teaming up with yeah. Freddie Blassie, and the team split up. And originally, Carson was slotted as the babyface, and the fans pretty much chose Blassie, and <laughs> LaBelle went with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about Ken Lucas, uh, another one. I think our our people in our age bracket, which probably most of our listeners know him best as the trainer and then tag team partner of Ricky Morton, but his most frequent tag team partner over the years was actually Dennis Hall. Lucas and Hall teamed up in the late 60s and early 70s for Gulf Coast and for Goulas. Uh, Lucas also teamed regularly with pretty much anybody that went through Florida or Georgia yeah. over the years. Um, and this Bobby Fields, like this, this, this appeals to Bobby Fields, also applies to rather to Bobby Fields, also to Don Fields. And this is something I wasn't aware of until fairly recently either. Um, like Lee Fields was the first one in, then then Don, then Bobby, I think is the, the proper Fields chronology. But I, I was not aware that Don in, and Bobby did not come in as the Fields brothers. Like Don initially came in as like Don Lane. Bobby came in as the Bobby Starr. And in both cases, this didn't, didn't last long, six months to a year before it either became known or they announced that they were Fields Brothers and they'd start teaming with Lee. But I, I didn't I didn't know that those guys just all come in as Fields Brothers, like they'd be you know, immediately, you know, set to the moon as a Fields Brother. But they came in as, you know. And in this territory in 71, there's a 
during a TV angle, there's a cameo by the next generation of the Fields family, the Hatfields, uh, in an angle with Bobby Shane, which would lead to Lee Fields coming out of retirement. A then 13-year-old Ricky Fields um, tried to, you know, get in on the fray as uh, Shane was fighting Lee Fields and ends up biting Bobby Shane on the ankle. <laughs> chomp, chomp, chomp. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so all sorts of Fields uh, folks. And of course, they are uh, their real surname is Hatfield and they are allegedly kin to the famous Hatfields of Hatfields and McCoy fame. Uh, on the heel side, uh, our upper mid carters are Jack and Jim Dalton, the wrestling pro, the wrestling pro number two, Eddie Sullivan, Rip Tyler, Mark Starr, the great o- Ota and Mr. Coma, Frank Monty and Mike York, the Alaskans, Dandy Jack Morrell, who is Frank Morrell, and the team of Flash and Rocket Monroe. Mm. So we, we talked about uh, Frank Monty, fabulous Frank Monty. Uh, yes. Cowboy, Cowboy Kirk uh, a while back. I don't think we've ever done, talked about like Mike York before. His uh, real name is uh, Mike O'Leary from San Francisco, not Alaska. Um, prior to wrestling, Mike had attended the University of San Francisco where he was a marketing major. Um, and I, I don't think they had a wrestling team, at least not when Mike was there. They had a judo team. Mike was not on the judo team, nor was he on the football team, but he was on the baseball team. He was their their varsity second baseman. Um, the USF infield at that time boasted one of the top double play combinations in California collegiate circles. With uh, Tinker's to Evers to chance, <laughs> yes, with the future Alaskan at second base and Ray Gale at shortstop. Um, and Mike would go on to quickly to pro wrestling after after college. Ray Gale would quickly go on to the Minnesota Twins farm system, playing two or three years for the uh, the Twins in, in the minor league ball. I mean, twins are probably pretty new back then, right? They're 64, so they were only around for, what, two or three years, probably? When the Twins start, 61? Something like they that. They left yeah. Senators become the Twins, 61, yeah. So, it's interesting. I, when I pictured Mike York as a baseball player, having you know, knowing what he looks like as a wrestler. You know. <laughs> yeah, don't see him being particularly limber. No, no. More like timber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> so a lot of these wrestlers uh, need a who's who. So uh, Jack and Jim Dalton. Now, of course, in previous years, Jack and Jim Dalton were Jim Boggus and Don Fargo. But clearly this Jack Dalton can't be Don Fargo because Don Fargo is here as Don Fargo, except when he's under a mask as Mr. D. So this Jack Dalton is Randy Colley. And Jim Dalton is Jim Boggus. Um, The wrestling pro, as you mentioned before, was Tarzan Baxter. The wrestling pro number two was Tim Tyler. And Tim had previously teamed up with Tarzan Tyler in Florida and in Georgia, and also with Rip Tyler in Gulf Coast and Fergulis. So he's a part of this extended Tyler clan that was acknowledged in multiple territories. I know McGurk, when Rip Tyler first came in, he acknowledged him as as a relative of Tarzan's who had been there the year before. And then later on, when Randy Tyler came in, Randy and Rip were billed as brothers. We talked about they had a family feud in 77, 76, 77 or 78, where 
Randy was the baby face and Rip Tyler was doing interviews saying that Randy is besmirching the good Tyler family name <laughs> by his actions yeah. of being a yeah, baby yeah. face. Cause of course the Tylers had always been heels. Um, Eddie Sullivan at one point during this year, he wore a mask, um, but he was still billed as Eddie Sullivan. And I believe this was similar to what Pat Patterson had done in years prior. And when Patterson did it, this was in uh, California, he would he said he wore it in storyline because it would make it impossible for opponents to read his facial expressions and see if he was in pain or hurt. But of huh. course, what he was really using it for was to load a foreign object under it and yeah, headbutt yeah, his yeah, opponents yeah. with it. So my guess is Sullivan was doing the same thing here. Um, Flash and Rocket Monroe. Flash is Gene Sanazaro, a.k.a. Gene Dundee. And this was the second Rocket Monroe Maury High. Um, oh. A lot of tag teams uh, on the heel side. And this goes into what we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast, that oh, yeah. the tag yeah. team division for for whatever that is in most territories at this time had regular heel teams battling makeshift babyface teams. So here we've got the Daltons. And at one point, they're feuding with Frank Dalton, who is uh, their their kin in storyline. So they have a little family feud. Um, the two wrestling pros, uh, Sullivan and Morell are a team early in the year. And then later in the year, Sullivan and Rip Tyler become the team. The great Oda and Mr. Coma are a tag team. And both of them, uh, started their careers in the early 60s with the JWA. So they were uh, in the business for about 10 years at this point in time. The Alaskans and uh, the Monroe brothers. So that's a lot of heel tag teams. And, you know, they're feuding with various babyface combinations. Lucas, uh, Dick Dunn and Don Carson, Cowboy Bob Kelly and Frank Dalton, uh, Ken Lucas and Johnny West, who we'll get to later. Um, but the the heel teams sort of have the advantage because they're regular teams and the baby faces have, you know, another obstacle to overcome by lack of experience as a team. So Johnny West uh, is a young Kevin Sullivan and he's a, a mid-carder on the babyface side. Other mid-card babyfaces, Bob Boyer, Greg Peterson, Rick Sanchez, Pepe Gomez, Ramon Perez, and Jackie Welch. Bob Boyer, that's, of course, Bobby Bold Eagle. Um, and Greg Peterson is one of those guys, just sort of, you look at him, just sort of like an anonymous, anonymous looking, barely six feet tall, not that impressive. Uh, I remember Buddy Colt talking about him in an interview saying how he was one of, like, the toughest dudes in all the Southern territories. Like an actual, not like a Harley Race type tough guy, but an actual shooter, a hooker, if you will. Uh, him and Spider Al Galento were, were two of the guys that you, you did not want to did not want to cross. Um, Ex-military guy, served as a corporal uh, for two years in Korea prior to wrestling. And his wife, Bobby, was also a wrestler. I think she worked mostly Gulf Coast, Florida, Georgia. And they have one of those like super sweet, heartbreaking, romantic stories where they've been married for decades. And, uh, you know, she passed away and... Uh, June 2001, and then he dies less than a month later. So that's that, that always gets me. Yeah, they, they worked a lot of mixed tags together in the uh, 
uh, around here. Now, in the early 60s, Greg Peterson was in Georgia feuding with the Heinz boys, Bad Boy Mm -hmm. Heinz and Billy Heinz. And he had a variety of partners, although at one point his partner, John, was the wrestler with my all-time favorite nickname. So, John, do you recall who that is? Is this Shoulders Newman now? You're close because it's a body part, but it's not shoulders. Oh, I knew. Is it Jack the Neck Vansky? It is. Yes, it is. Yes. Jack the Neck Vansky. Dang it. Yes. Uh, now, Jackie Welch was Lester Welch's son, which means he's related to all the Welches, all the Fullers, and all the Fieldses in some fashion. So on the heel side are Mid Carters. Uh, the team of Carl von Stroheim and Frank Martinez, also Nikita Malkovich, Eduardo Perez, Gentleman Jim, and Black Bart. Yeah, Frank Martinez is a really interesting guy. I know we do a little bit about him in the year in the life and that profile, but there's really just an interesting, interesting career, interesting life. Um, got off to a late start, almost 30 years old when he had his first matches of record, and a really interesting lesser known origin story too. like grew up in Puerto Rico working on a farm comes to the U S ends up in Pennsylvania, picking tomatoes, makes his way to New York, living in Brooklyn, working in restaurants, odd jobs, manufacturing aircraft parts, camera assembly, making kitchen cop cabinets. Um, he's also a boxer prior to becoming a wrestler. Um, just only had a three or four pro matches, but in 1958, he stumbles upon the gym that was owned by Antonina Rocca and Miguel Perez, uh, hoping to just work out, uh, you know, train and box. Uh, in that gym, he meets a young Pedro Morales, who had only been wrestling professionally for a year or so himself, uh, but had nonetheless been training wrestlers for Rock and Perez. And Pedro eventually ends up training Frank Martinez to be a wrestler, with Martinez eventually debuting after three years of training. <laughs> Um, and Martinez says it was, I think, six months to a year before Pedro even had him step foot inside a wrestling ring. It was all amateur mat work and weight training before that. So it's such an interesting time and place to get into pro wrestling, like New York City in the late 50s, early 60s. And it's, it, Frank Martinez's career, you know, such a, you know, like a, a very sort of it's not a name you hear mentioned very very often if at all and this is such an interesting you know interesting interesting figure we talked about nikita molkovich at great length uh yeah early a, on in the podcast early on a couple of years ago great just really interesting life like like the the submarine you know working on submarines and using that sort of talent to go from that to to belt making super super interesting yeah, and then uh, Eduardo Perez, another guy you don't hear a lot about. He had a 20-plus year career holding titles in Gulf Coast, Texas, and Tennessee, and briefly worked under a hood in Florida as the Bomber. Um, Black Bart was not Ricky Harris, but a guy who also wrestled as John Black. He didn't really have any major feuds in wrestling, but John Black had a hell of a feud with Stefano DeMera on Days of Our Lives in the 90s. <laughs> That's more of all my children guy myself. It's, it's, I remember that one. I, I would I was Days of Our Lives, and then I'd switch to ABC. I would watch One Life to Live in General Hospital. 
Oh, nice, 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 nice. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a small <laughs> number of preliminary wrestlers as well. On the babyface side, you have Hurricane Rivera, a.k.a. Jose Rivera, who is not Jose Luis Rivera. Never know. Pedro Colombo and Ron Hill, who also worked here under a mask as the Gladiator and in other places as the Golden Gladiator. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is Ron Hill the guy who is generally credited with training Kevin Sullivan? I'm not sure. Or is that a different Ron Hill? I mean, there's, he also, there's a book, there's a Ron Hill book. It's got to be 10 years old at this point. And I'm sad to say that I have not read it. I do not have it on my shelf at this moment, but I ordered it last week. So okay. perhaps next month I'll, I'll share some new Ron Hill but info. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Kevin Sullivan because you reminded me. We talked about Sullivan wrestling here as Johnny West. He yeah. had already used the ring name Kevin Sullivan in Georgia prior to coming here. So, John, why do we believe that he used the name Johnny West here? My money is on Eddie Sullivan. Yeah. Being there was a, already a, an Eddie Sullivan. And I guess they didn't want another family member because there were too many Fieldses <laughs> and Daltons and Monroe yeah. families. So they yeah, just yeah. Uh, gave him a different name altogether. Yeah. And I believe this is the only territory he worked as Johnny West in. And so I said, I was looking at Ron Hill. I was like, oh, well, that would make sense for Sullivan to be here. If Ron Hill, you know, Ron Hill maybe got him, got him booked. Right. Yeah. Something like that. So uh, Ron Hill, he began his career in New England in the mid 50s. And an early opponent of his was Frank Shields, later ah. known as Bull Bolinski. <laughs> Bolinski, yeah. Bad yeah. Boy Shields, the, the, the wrestling truck driver. Yeah. Wow. And on the heel <laughs> side, the prelim wrestlers are Don Serrano, Oki Shakina. This is the second Oki Shakina. And Marcel Vachon. Huh. Like with Serrano, Don Serrano. We always talk about guys who are, you know, the Forrest and Gumps of, of pro wrestling in, in their own way. Serrano is, is one of those guys for me with so many, so many of these brushes with greatness, of, you know, from different generations, even like you know, trained by Antonina Rocca. I think he's well, Hogan's first opponent, I think. Uh, you know, the, then that video of, Buddy Rogers explaining the figure four leg lock, you know, from Florida, like he's the one getting the figure four leg lock put on him by Bud Sawyer. Uh, he's the under the mask as the black demon as part of Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Clutch challenge when Patterson comes out and they kick off that angle uh, leading to the legendary alley fight match. And uh, all these little little things he was part of you know he was absolutely everywhere i feel like he just passed away pretty recently too in the last year or two right i'm not sure i hadn't heard that i think it was yeah, i think it was uh, i want to say last year i didn't have to have to check but yeah, yeah he also recently. he also worked for ann gunkel in the dying days of all south as super soul man davis and he wow. feuded with carlos cologne oh wow huh let's see february 2021 ah Serrano. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So on average, the regular roster consisted of about 20 wrestlers. We mentioned earlier Prince Pullins and Mike Boyette turned during the year, but they weren't the only ones. Frank Dalton, we mentioned uh, he had been a heel early in the year, but turned babyface. And the Blue Yankee maybe kind of sort of turned babyface at the end of the year. Um, basically, 
during this most of 1971, the blue Yankee here was Billy Hamilton, but, and he was working as a heel in Florida on the, just mostly in the Florida and Alabama towns. And then in December, the blue Yankee shows up as the baby face in Mississippi. I think this may have been Curtis Smith, who was coming in, uh, taking a break between stints in Amarillo and Florida, where he was working as one of the Infernos. The timetable lines up perfectly with when Curtis leaves Amarillo and before he starts in Florida. So if that's the case, that means that you have a blue Yankee only appearing in Alabama and Florida as a heel. And then... In Mississippi, where these fans have no idea about the Blue Yankee because they have their own TVs and they don't acknowledge anything that happens in Mobile, Pensacola, or Dothan, or any of the other Florida towns, a Blue Yankee just shows up and he's a babyface. So if you consider it a contiguous character, he kind of turns, even though there's no angle to turn him. Yeah. Yeah. So if that sounds confusing, the deal with uh, the wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter might be even more so. He's under a mask. Uh, he turns babyface in some towns, but not all of them. He turned babyface in Pensacola, Mobile, and Dothan. Yet in Panama City, which is still on the same Florida-Alabama wing as those other cities, he's still a heel. And in Dothan, he turns back heel after a month, but stays as a babyface in Mobile and Pensacola. And there's a lot of situations like that where a wrestler will turn, briefly turn for like a month in one market and then turn back. So to truly count the number of turns is very, very difficult. <laughs> uh, there are three full turns, Boyette, Pullins, and Frank Dalton. Um, a wrestling pro turning heel in about half of the markets in the territory, but not all of them. Uh, a whole bunch of single market turns, and then the situation with the Blue Yankee, which might be considered a turn, but might not because there's never apparently an angle to turn him. And it might be two different guys, even though they have the same exact gimmick. Oh, boy. So, yeah, however you measure it, it's a lot of turns. And one of the things we track on a year in the life is the number of turns per year in each territory. So far, Gulf Coast no matter how you measure it, probably has the most. The uh, other ones with the most number of turns were Amarillo with three and Stampede with four. So if you count all these pseudo turns and half turns and maybe turns, I think we get way above that number here. There's also a whole lot of other unique stats that we track. Uh, We cover, uh, we have a territory fact sheet as part of a year in the life that shows all these stats and a whole lot more. And you might find these stats quite informative, or you might find them to be useless trivia. And speaking of useless trivia... It is now time for John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Here we go. Here we where go. Where I ask John four questions from one of the cards from the game that John bought me uh, last year as part of John Buys Me Stuff. Stuff John bought me off eBay. And now we're going to play the game. So question number one. Okay. Here we go. 
which wrestler declined to shave the head of Gorgeous George's valet after he won the right by defeating George? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, this, is, this is, this is, I was not expecting this, Al. Jesus. Ah. Uh, uh, Canadian wow. legend. Canadian legend. Uh, Neil Young. No. Um, <laughs> it's Stu Hart? Not Stu Hart. That's right. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. The don't answer know. is, yeah, no, this was a hard one. Uh, Whipper Billy Watson. Whipper, okay. And yeah, of course, yeah. over the years, there may very well have been other wrestlers. They probably did the same angle yeah. in many other places. So, uh, you know, yeah. who knows? Stu Hart may have done the same angle. And so yeah. might have Neil Young, for all we know. <laughs> that's a... That's a that's a tough one. Wow. wow. Right. Interesting. I, I, cool, cool, cool. I'm, li- I'm liking this. This is fun. Yeah, question number okay. two. Yeah. Okay. Which wrestler spearheaded the formation of the Florida Sheriff's Boys Ranch? That would be Eddie Graham. Are you sure it wasn't Terry Garvin? I got I hope not. <laughs> Jesus, I, 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 I'm not. No, it was man, Eddie Graham. Praying. You are that correct. It was that. Eddie Graham. Oh, thank God. Oh. Whew. Question number three. In 1985, AWA champion Rick Martell wrestled former WWF champion Bob Backlund for the AWA World Heavyweight title. Who won? I'm I'm guessing Rick Martell is the answer. Is that your final answer? (sighs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The match was a draw. Oh, cool. Both men yeah. counted out. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, obviously, the new backland didn't win. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's all right. Okay. All right. Let's try and salvage this. Let's try and get to 500. <laughs> True or false? Nikolai Volkov has competed in WrestleMania 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to go with false. I don't think he was in three. All right. So you, you, you think he was at WrestleMania one. What was, what match was he in at WrestleMania one? That was the match, uh, him and the Sheik against Wyndham and Rotunda, right? Okay. Where, uh, glassy. Right. Okay. WrestleMania two would have been. <sighs> 86. I don't know. I don't know what that match was. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I, well, what, I, what was one of the, uh, Battle special Royal? attractions for WrestleMania two? Battle Royal, maybe. Okay, so probably if he was in it, he may have been in the Battle Royal. And then WrestleMania 3, you are saying he was not a part of WrestleMania 3. Therefore, you are saying the question is false. Yes. Your final answer. My final answer. John, you are incorrect. Wow, what was the three match? WrestleMania 3, the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov defeated B. Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel by... Disqualification. I remember now. Now, now I can see it. You were on such a hot streak for months, John. It had to come to a crashing end, just like the Atlanta Braves dropping (laughs) two out of three to the St. Louis Cardinals uh, uh, earlier, uh, a few days before we're recording this. After going on a wildly successful road trip, John, you have come plummeting back down to earth. Yeah, huh? Oh, yes, yeah. Well, this was a, that was a hard one. The first one was really, really hard. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did get the question, your trivia question earlier. So that's your, that, that, that I feel, I feel better about that than having botched this. this so you're this doing thing. better at John plays Al gets Al. championship wrestling <laughs> yes. trivia than you yes. are about <laughs> Gordon Soley's championship. Wrestling. This month, this month only, this month only. Okay. <laughs> so we talked a little bit earlier about uh, David Gibbs profiles on the site. Uh, one of them is on Bobby Shane and this run in Gulf coast. This is his first ever heel run. It's the first time he uh, uses the uh, the gimmick of the king of wrestling. And in fact, it's believed that that all debuted for his match, the, his first match with Lee Fields. Uh, the, the angle with Fields led to Lee coming out of retirement. And they had a show. They drew 6,000 fans to Mobile for Lee Fields coming out of retirement. And Shane defeated Fields. Although later in the summer, in I think August or September, Shane came back and Fields got his win back. Um, so, John, the profile on Shane, uh, what were your thoughts uh, in, in reading that? This is that's great because um, we, we talked about Shane in, in detail again a while back. But this is a really nice little dive into him here. Uh, really interesting. We'll talk about the, 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 the amount of titles and everything later, but it's really one of the more interesting things about his run here is they unequivocally make a mega star out of him. All the belts feuding with Lee Fields, get, getting that rub, like I said, winning the city of mobile title from cowboy Bob Kelly. I just, but he never wins the Gulf coast heavyweight title. Um, which is just really, it's really interesting for some, I, I don't understand. It, I, I very, I'm very confused by that. And I'm thinking, oh, when we look at the territory fact sheet that, you know, you, you set up, you can see that the, this is leaning toward being much more of a baby face territory, but it wasn't like cowboy Bob Kelly held on to the title all year. You had, you had heel champs, you know, you right. know wrestling yeah. pro, Don Fargo, Rip Tyler. So, you know, it's like, do they not think he was ready I, even if they think he was leaving the territory, they do changes on a frequent enough basis where it doesn't seem like that would be an issue. What, well, what, do, you, what I do, think, do you think? I think that was it because his his full time run here is four months, maybe mm. a little bit more than that, but no more than four and a half months. So to build him up, he's winning all those regional titles, and by the time it would then make sense to put the big one on him, he's leaving. Oh. And again, we have no idea if. His leaving was preordained or on the fly or what? I really, you know, that's one of those mysteries we don't know. But it wouldn't have made sense for them to do a quickie thing with him. The big, you know, the 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 big thing with him, you know, at this point he's climbing, 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 and they decide to do the angle with Lee Fields. And mm. I talked about them drawing six thousand in Mobile. This was at a different venue than they normally ran. They had been normally been running the Fort Whiting Armory every Wednesday. They ran a huge spring spectacular in uh, the month before at the municipal auditorium. They brought in Mula, the Infernos, Bearcat Brown and Sonny King, Herb and Lester Welch, just a loaded, loaded, loaded show and drew 9,000. And then a month later, with no outside talent and just fields coming out of retirement against Shane, they drew six. 
Wow. So Shane wouldn't have yeah. needed the Shane wouldn't have needed the belt for that. He had become a made man. They probably knew he was leaving. So they said instead, you know, instead of giving a quickie run with the belt, let's use him as the as to pop a house with Lee Fields. Uh, and, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And because it's interesting, because like I said in the first match with Lee Fields, Shane wins and then he's done. And then he's gone. Except yeah. for monthly returns for big shows at the Mobile Municipal Auditorium. They actually start running that venue regularly every week in June. So based off the houses that Shane had been a huge part of, they were able to upgrade to what I'm almost certain was a larger building in Mobile. Interesting. Interesting. And that's without giving him that big belt. So that's, again, this is one of those things for every territory. You know, everyone has these short runs. We talked last month about Tolis. Uh, John Tolis being in central states, just treading water because they needed him to be away from Southern California so that they could bring him back and do the build for him and Blassie. So whether, you know, whether Shane was, you know, even though this is his first one as a heel, his star level may have already been such that he, you know, was couldn't stay in a small territory for too much longer. Although after he leaves here, he goes to McGurk. And he works as like an upper mid-card baby face, you know, not, you know, not getting pushed, but nothing huge. And then he goes to Texas where he's a baby face in the mid-cards. It's not till later in the year that he goes back to Florida. And the first time he's in Florida as a heel uh, in November or December of 71. Mm. So, again, given the fact that he just sort of ends up in McGurk's territory doing not much, I wonder if there are some things going on mm. behind the scenes yeah some, um, and, and that shane and again shane beating fields and then disappearing seems yeah. weird but you know that's just one of those things where you'll probably never know the true answer so shane was a major player another major player in the territory during the year was mike boyette mm-hmm. so over the span of 20 years mike boyette real name mike boyer b-o-w-y-e-r Uh, Went from a judoka in the Navy to a coconut to a hippie to a grenade to the holder of the worst (laughs) win-loss record in the UWF. That's that's quite a path to travel. Even though that was 20 years, that's still uh, quite a path to carve out. So let's start at the beginning. Um, Mike was born April 24th, 1943 in Tucson, Arizona. He went to high school in California at El Cajon Valley High in eastern San Diego County. In high school, Mike wrestled and played football, and it's generally believed he took up judo while serving in the U.S. Marines. Now, a little bit more on Mike Boyer's early life, John? Yeah, like I said, um, also, too, before, even before we get into his, his life, um, we talked about Kevin Sullivan working as Johnny West because of Eddie Sullivan being an established name in the territory. Same deal here for Boyette. Mike's real last name, like you said, Boyer. Um, And early on and at various points in his career, he wrestled under his real name or slight variations of Mike Boyer, Mike Bauer, or like you said, Coconut Willie Boyer. Uh, But when Mike arrived in Gulf Coast in spring of 70, one of the mid-carters on the roster was veteran Bob Boyer. So a name change that was deemed necessary for Mike. Uh, and what's also interesting that someone thought he resembled Mario Galento. And if you recall back when we talked about Mario Valento, his real name, real name was Bonnie Lee Boyette. Yep. Which is how we get to Mike Boyette. 
Um, Mike Boyer, like I said, born Arizona, 43, second of four children, I believe, two boys, two girls. Uh, when he was young, toddler, if you will, his father worked on a ranch, a family ranch, owned by Mike's great uncle Herbert. His mother, mother was the homemaker. Uh, sometime between 43, 47, uh, dreaming of a life beyond the Arizona ranch, the family moves further west to San Diego. And by 1950, there may be 20 miles south of San Diego in El Cajon, like you said, where where both of Mike's parents worked at Gillespie Airfield. Uh, Gillespie Airfield built as a camp, Camp Gillespie, during World War II uh, in 1942, used mostly as a training facility for paratroopers. Uh, one of the more notable units to pass through there was part of the unit nicknamed the Cactus Air Force that fought at the Battle of Guadalcanal. Um, and after the war, Campus turned over to San Diego County, transitioned into a general aviation facility where Mike's dad worked as a mechanic and Mike's mom worked in assembly. Um, I mean, not surprisingly, like I said, Mike, athlete in high school, wrestling, football, winning the award of best lineman in his senior year. After high school, Mike joins the Marines. I couldn't find, I was hoping to find some military, military records, but I was not able to find any. But... I was able to verify this, oddly enough, through an announcement from 1965 in a newspaper from Minnesota of his engagement to his then-girlfriend. Uh, she was from Minnesota, hence that showing up there, as they were both stationed in the U.S. Marines in San Diego at the time. Mike's parents' names are both mentioned in this article. We're lucky here because his dad has a fantastic name. Shadwell Savory Horace Boyer. So if you're doing research, this is the kind of name that you love to see. If you see the name Mike Boyer and the age matches, geography matches, you feel confident you're on the right track. But having Shadwell there to triple confirm that this is indeed Mike Boyer is fantastic. The word on the street has always been that he earned a spot on the 1964 Olympic judo team, but broke his leg and had to give up his spot. And of course, one of the things we like to do here at Charting the Territories is to try and confirm or deny this as best we can. So, John, that was uh, one of your tasks this morning. Yeah. What, what were you able to find, if anything? Yeah, um, you know, the, uh, I, it's, uh, I'm not sure that I buy it. Um, uh, it, right, but it's, so you you didn't find anything that you know says you know that, that lists everyone that competed and tried out and whatever. So we don't we don't know for a fact that this didn't happen, but we certainly didn't find anything that led us to believe it did happen. Right? Uh, yeah. Could he have been in Olympic trials? Sure. Unfortunately, with the stuff like Golden Gloves boxing and even the Olympic trials, there's no master database or the equivalent of like a baseball reference.com where you can search for everyone there. So I, I, you know, I can't find any reference in any of the various newspaper databases of Mike involved in the judo tournament around this time. Um, aside from like a judo, a judo jacket match. With, judo? With the, judo. <laughs> judo. 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 <laughs> is, that, well, is that a stipulation match that uh, MJF is going to have coming up? <laughs> oh, God. A judo, judo jacket match in Florida, Hiro Matsuda, and one of the Mr. Ito in Gulf Coast. And just like timeline-wise, I'm so confused by this as well. He's like, was he a judo champion in the Marines, who then gets allowed to go to the Olympic trials, breaks his leg, then goes back to the Marines and gets married? Or was he doing the amateur judo thing, breaks his leg in 1964, 
then joined as a Marines to become a judo champion. So I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm so confused by the, by the timeline. Yeah. Here there, as well. So there's probably elements of truth to it. There probably, you know, at least, you know, some of those things happen, but not, not necessarily in the sequence that, that we believe it, it happened. Yeah. Um, there's not enough to truly call BS on it, but we have no evidence, uh, you know, the where we can say this absolutely did happen. And that's I would, a lot of the times that's what we're going to end up with. Sometimes we are able to find proof of things or significant evidence of things here. We have nothing that leads us to believe it's true. But at the same time, other than the timeline seems iffy. That that's not really enough to say. Therefore, it absolutely could not have happened. Yeah, I mean the other thing too. Uh, you know, I, I I feel like him making the Olympic judo team in '64 and having to give up the spot because he broke his leg would have been newsworthy um, and noteworthy enough to have been mentioned in the newspapers. Like the Olympic judo trials are at the New York World's Fair, which is getting a ton of press that year and there's just no i feel like that would be we we found a list of the four americans that did compete in the 64 olympics but no mention of any other participants in the trials you know along the way um what's interesting though is that someone who did compete at the 1964 olympics in judo and medaled also had a uh dabbled in professional wrestling Oh, is that uh, ooh, Anton Giesink? Yes. Am I pronouncing his name right? That's his name, yes. right? Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. In 64, he won the gold medal in the open weight division in judo. Uh, he was recruited by Giant Baba to wrestle for All Japan and was sent to train with the Funks in 1973. So he had one match in uh, for the Amarillo Territory, but that was it. Uh, and then he went to uh, Japan and spent the rest of his wrestling career as a uh, part-timer working one or two tours a year. But his first match in Japan saw him team with Baba to defeat Bruno Sammartino and Calypso Hurricane. John, do you know who Calypso Hurricane was? I do not. All right. So, So a hurricane happens on water. What is one of the two equivalence of that that happens on land a, a, a monsoon no monsoon involves water so uh oh yes yeah uh, not a tornado but a is it a cyclone yes so, so calypso hurricane cyclone negro correct Ah, thank you. All right. Well, you're two for two, and John plays Al Getz's championship (laughs) wrestling trivia. I needed help with that, and I forgot how weather works also. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm actually neighbors with the uh, one of the on-camera meteorologists for CNN and also for the Weather Channel. Um, Well, the one for the Weather Channel doesn't live in my building anymore, but he... Um, lived here with his wife, who was also the on-camera meteorologist for the local CBS affiliate. Wow. So at one point, we had three meteorologists in this building, and I still oh. never knew what the damn weather was going to be. <laughs> so uh, Boyette was, uh, I believe he was trained by Eddie Sharkey. That seems to be the most common name that pops up. Some of his earliest matches are in the AWA in 1968. He spent the spring of 69 in California 
and then went to Amarillo in the summer of 69. Perhaps he mm-hmm. went there to buy a six string at the five and dime. <laughs> and then played it till his fingers bled. <laughs> I have a feeling instead of buying a six string, he may have bought a coconut willy and someone saw him drinking one and decided to name him that. That's <laughs> yeah. So he's wrestling as coconut willy Boyer in Amarillo. And so, John, you pointed out this predates the um, uh, the little person wrestler by the name of coconut willy. By a few years, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I never knew there was a uh, a non-little coconut willy. Yeah, this is right? this is coconut big willy. Yeah, big willy, big willy, big style. coconut you, willy. I don't know. What do you think? I was looking at the 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 the, the results early early career for uh, Boyette Boyer, and I, generally the AWA is where he first starts working regularly. There's that one match that shows up. Like September of '66, that normally I, if you see that two-year gap, yeah, that's like so, all BS on it. Yes, but here, because he was in San Diego, do you think that could actually be him? I mean, anything's possible. I, yeah. I and I didn't dig into it enough to check, but usually when something like that happens, it means someone made a typo in the year. Um, instead of 66 that might have happened in 68 for example okay um, there you go that is the most common thing i find when when something seems completely out of whack but it's also possible that it that it's legit and again there may have been other matches that have not made it to cage match wrestling data of him around that time that would show a him working a little more often than that. Um, also, uh, you know, there are a lot of dead zones when it comes to wrestling results being online. So he might have been wrestling for places that uh, just haven't been researched well enough in 66 and 67. One of his tag partners in that mystery match is our, our friend Broadway Venus. So oh. that's, I, thought that, I thought that was interesting. Uh, yes. <laughs> we'll have to, if, if we ever if we ever get the chance to interview Broadway Venus. <laughs> Like uh, like uh, like our friends did last month, we could ask him about that, and hopefully he won't, you know, start yelling and screaming. I'll keep that in mind. Oh. Yeah, well, the the coconut gimmick was not a winner for Boyette, but Mm-mm. he next latched on to a much more successful gimmick. Uh, he grew out his hair and his beard, and he started wearing tie dye tights and a beaded jacket, and debuted in Gulf Coast in February 1970 as Hippie. Mike Boyette. And of course, this was a time when hippies were the scourge of Mm. society, especially in places like Mm. the Deep South, where they didn't like that hippie crap and that liberal California bullshit. Nope. So he got a ton of heat. Oh, yeah. uh, As you would imagine. And he had a a nice year-long run as a heel there. I mean, got over so well that... uh, you know, they figured they could turn him babyface and that the fans would take to him. And sure enough, they did. Um, he ends up being the guy, uh, he ends up being the junkyard dog of uh, Gulf Coast in huh. that he uh, has a bunch of tag team partners that all turn on him. Hmm. In fact, on two occasions during that, in 1971, he wins some a, a version of the tag team titles. And during... Uh, during the match where they win the titles, his partner turns on him, but they end up winning. Oh, dear. So they do the reluctant partner thing for a month or so, and then they find a way to, uh, you know, change change the titles 
Um, so yeah, just like Junkyard Dog in his early Mid-South days, everybody is turning on Boyette, but he's <laughs> making Gulf Coast his home from 70 through 77. He has brief runs elsewhere, but always comes back to Gulf Coast. And uh, you mentioned going through results to find gaps or anom- anomalies, and you found a few months uh, gap beginning in August 1977. So you decided to do a little research, John, and you found something of note. Uh, yeah. Um, our, 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 our friend, the hippie, uh, made the headlines, not, not, not for wrestling, not for any wrestling, but for being arrested. Uh, burglary. Uh, this was, you know, the headlines and it, and it's, it, this is interesting. So interesting. The headlines aren't, Mike Mike Boyer arrested. The headlines are Hippie Boyette arrested. Yeah, because um, this was in the uh, was it the Pensacola paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, so yep. I mean, this is where he's you know a yeah. star wrestler. This is like sixty thousand dollars in 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 jewelry. Yeah, so he stole something. he stole uh, jewelry from a woman's house, and then they used the jewelry to buy a van. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Like I. I was like, well, this this seems so for him to never have been involved in anything like this that we're aware of, and just this one thing that happens, we're aware. Really weird, yeah. But I said there's the other guy, uh, was it Roger Lynn East? I looked into him. This is the guy. If I'm if I'm if I'm going after one guy, is the brains of the operation, or not? Not necessarily the brains, but like the one who's 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 pulling the, the strings. Yeah. Roger Lynn East is the guy. This guy was, I hate to use the words career criminal because there's something, I'm sure something terrible happened to lead him to this life, but he's just constantly in and out of jail for doing uh, all sorts of stuff. So I, 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 I'm leaning towards Roger Lynn East was the guy they were going after in the end here. Not, uh, not the hippie Boyette. Okay. But, so did you, but, did you find anything as to whether Boyette actually served time or, or if there was a trial or anything like that? I can't find uh, anything for him after okay, so, after those initial stuff. So I went ahead and did some digging. As you said, there's a several-month gap in his results. So we sort of figure finding this that he might have been incarcerated. But I don't believe that's the case. Because I found a Facebook post from Afa, the Wild Samoan, talking about how he and Sika went down to Puerto Rico with Mike Boyette. And there's a picture, and it, it looks like Boyette is managing them. The only huh. time this could have happened would have been the fall of 1977. Afa and Sika are in Puerto Rico from October through December. Interesting. So the question is, did Boyette just say, "Okay, I got in trouble with the law. I need to get, you know, I need to find, you know, some new friends. Uh, hey, I'm going <laughs> to go to Puerto Rico." Or maybe did he decide to pull a cowboy Bob Ellis? And mm. just lamb it and hightail it out of Pensacola and hide out in Puerto Rico until the heat died down. Uh, huh. That I don't know. But uh, so he's managing the Samoans for a few months in Puerto Rico. And then in January, he has a handful of matches in Puerto Rico. The Samoans had already left. So I figured they converted him back into a wrestler. And then by May of 1978, he's back stateside working for Goulas. And a couple of years later, he has a run in Southwest as Grenade Boyer, with the idea being he could explode at any time. But even better than that was a few oh, years baby. after that, working for Ghoulis as Apocalypse, 
which is a ripoff of Sylvester Stallone's character, John Rambo, from the movie First Blood. First Blood came about about came out about six weeks before the first Apocalypse vignette aired. So this is, and that's, Memphis always did that. They were always on top of pop culture. And something, you know, got big, they would rip it off. So we'll talk more about Apocalypse (laughs) in a little bit. But it appears his full-time run in wrestling ends in 1983. But a few years later, he comes back for a notable run for the UWF. And it's believed that uh, this was uh, done as a favor for Michael Hayes. Boyette reportedly broke Hayes into the business in some fashion. It depends on where you read it and what your source is, but it's anything from Boyette trained Hayes to um, Boyette was just his hookup to to get into the business. Uh, According to Percy Pringle, Hayes would go to shows where Boyette was wrestling and and carry his bags and sort of be his unofficial assistant. Um, I don't know if Boyette was officially Hayes' trainer or not. I was always under the impression that Hayes and Terry and Percy weren't necessarily self-trained, but had minimal uh, formal training when they mm. first started working uh, outlaws uh, around Florida and whatnot. And then, of course, Gordy goes to work for Luthez as a 16-year-old. Um, Hayes and Gordy end up working for the Culkins in Mississippi in 77. So, you know, based on the time frame, if, if this was the case, um, this would have been in early 77. So before Boyette's troubles with the law is when uh, young Michael Hayes is his apprentice in some fashion. Uh, And perhaps Hayes was then able to get Boyette this, this uh, spot in the UWF in 87, where he does a losing streak gimmick and there's never a payoff to it because the, I think the UWF folds (laughs) before (laughs) whatever. And maybe there never was going to have been a payoff. But what's interesting is According to both Wrestling Data and Cage Match, his second to last match in the UWF in September 1987 was against a man who is still active today. John, question number three in John Plays Al Getz's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Who is still active today that was wrestling in 1987 that also very recently wrestled in front of the largest paid attendance in the history of professional wrestling? Is it a man called Sting? It was a man called Sting. <laughs> Correct. What, what is, this is boggling my mind. And this is when I was looking through the, 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 the results for late, 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 late career. Mike Boyette is like, his career and from you know like you said 83 to early early 87 when wrestling was at its absolute peak he's just yeah. like gone and he's, he's not gone. he's not that old he's in his early 40s yeah yeah and yeah yeah it's just he's gone you know like he's i think he worked for bob kelly like resurrected yeah well Hulk i think Coast that's like, after i think that's after 87 i think that's he's is that post? Oh, okay. various uh Startups in Louisiana and Mississippi for a couple of years. Yeah. I think he's done by the end of the decade for good. Yeah. It's and, just uh, so weird. Like those yeah. years, like the money he could have made, but you know, I, uh, it's it's crazy. Uh, Boyette doesn't seem like the kind of guy who, I don't want to say he didn't care about money, but I don't think he was <laughs> a, a savvy businessman, oh, no. shall yeah, we no, say. No. Uh, you Definitely compiled not. some uh, footage of Mike Boyette uh, that is 
widely available on the YouTube. As always, I will put this together as a playlist on our YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. Just search for Charting the Territories on YouTube. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about what's on this playlist and then give us a, a little bit of details about a couple of the uh, the matches or footage. Sure, I got the, I got, uh, the first one I threw up there um, was Boyette versus Bill Watts. Um, and I think this is from 75. Yeah, it has to have been. Confirm. I think it has to have been from around that time because that's that's when Boyette was in uh, McGurk's territory. Um, so 75, maybe early 76. Yeah. And yeah, it's some some kind of cool mat wrestling. Almost looks like a, a, a friendly shoot, as they say, where Watts are just like tying him up and riding him and sort of slapping around a little bit. Boyette uh, looks um, like his hair hasn't been washed in weeks. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, and then uh, you know, uh, Watts finishes him off with a power slam, the local homeless slam. There. Um, next, I've got one from my own, my own collection: uh, Boyette versus Luis Arriba Martinez from the UWA, May of '76. And when people talk about Michael Hayes, I don't know if he's being trained. You know, you, can, you definitely you can when you can see him taking some mannerisms from Boyette when you watch this footage um you get a you really get a sense of that um not so much with 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 the bumps Michael Hayes is not a, a great bump taker or at least not as good as, as Mike Boyette was but just the mannerisms the way he sort of like walks around at ring size and in the ring no moonwalk obviously but you could get a little little sense of that um then I think one from Houston where he's grenade boyer tagging with Jim Duggan and Bob Sweeten uh, versus Gran Apollo, Tito Santana, and Ken Lucas. Um, so this is one of those weird, like, six-man, two-ring tag matches. Um, it's very rare that I say it's not the most enjoyable thing in the world to watch, and I put it on a playlist, but this I'm going to say that here. It's really not the most enjoyable thing to watch. I was hoping for Grenade Boyer to explode. We he don't really not, get that. Sam. He did not. He's there, basically, I think, to take those big bumps and to get pinned. So and he does that, but it's cool seeing him in the ring with Tito Santana, you know. Um, I also have the Apocalypse video promo. Have to watch that. If you watch one of these things, just watch. Yeah, that. just just watch the promo video. And then, <laughs> well, we've been whispering Apocalypse. Uh, that that was part of this vignette, and it's believed that uh, Jim Cornette is the whisperer in this yeah. in this <laughs> fabulous piece of uh, filmography. Yeah, there, and I got a match with the uh, Apocalypse Adrian Street uh, against Lawler, Dundee, Memphis TV. I love how they build Apocalypse up with this mercenary hitman for hire, tough guy, blah, 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 blah. And then they team him with Adrian Street. Like, if, if, <laughs> if the character of Apocalypse was as he was presented, there's no way in hell he would have teamed with Adrian Street at this time. No. That's, you know, one of the funny things to me when I think about it now is how easy it was for me as a kid to say, oh, it makes sense that. Ivan Koloff is teaming with Tully Blanchard. Like, yes, Tully's a heel, but he's still a fucking American, and we're at war with the damn Russians. Yeah, this is, this is Memphis, baby. Uh, there, this is, and this is this is a little long. Uh, I can see like some modern fans being might feel this goes a little longer than is necessary, but it's Lawler and Dundee and Boya and Adrian Street and Cornette and Miss Linda, so. I, I recommend sitting through this one. It, it it ends, of course, with Adrian Street getting rolled up after being distracted by Dundee, forcing himself upon Miss Linda at ringside. Um, I got a Boyette versus Shane Douglas. Um, 
This is during Boyette's like losing streak. I just love stuff like this. This and the next match uh, was Boyette versus Norvell Austin. This is from one of those later promotions, World Organization Wrestling, which I think is Rip Tyler in Alabama, Pensacola, late 80s. Uh, at the end of that match, Bob Holly shows up and there's like a little scuffle. It's just cool seeing these guys. Sting, we mentioned earlier, Bob Holly, Shane Douglas, uh, mixing it up with Mike Boya. I think that's really that's really cool. Um, and lastly, I have a nice little appearance of Mike Boyette on the Uncle Henry show uh, from the late 1980s, a segment of him on an Alabama, I don't know, this public access talk show that still exists, I think, on iHeartRadio. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's, uh, and it's like in a lot, it's a restaurant or a bar. Mike's ordering martinis, uh, talking about how being a hippie is not about LSD. It's about love. Very bizarre and short. It's wild. And if, you, if you do watch this, note, you know, take a look at Boyette and try and guess how old he is. And then I'll tell you he was no more than 47 years old. And he doesn't look it. I'll leave it to you uh, to watch this for yourself and see if he looks older than 47 <laughs> or younger than 47. Although I have a feeling you, you can guess which of the two it probably was. <laughs> um, and then you found a funny story about the hippie from uh, the old Jim Ross blog. So really quickly, uh, we'll post a link to it. But really quickly, what was uh, what was the <laughs> anecdote? <laughs> Just basically, he enjoyed smoking uh, the cannabis in his car while driving and the cops, he get pulled over and the, the, the cop would detect a strange smell. So Mike would pull out a marijuana scented air freshener and then spray the whole car with it. And the, everybody would start cracking up. The police officer would laugh uproariously at Mike's unique sense of humor. And to JR's knowledge, this little gag worked every time. So, <laughs> just, I miss the old Jim Ross blog when he would post stuff like this. Yeah. So, there's so many great little things. They're gone. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta way back machine them. But yeah. So, so Boyette held a couple of titles in Gulf Coast during the year. He was the Gulf Coast heavyweight champion at the beginning of the year. He teamed with Frank Dalton to hold the Gulf Coast tag team titles late in the year. And he had six different runs of as half of the U.S. tag team champions with four different partners. And that was uh, pretty much the norm for this territory. Lots and lots of title changes and lots and lots of titles. The Gulf Coast heavyweight title, the Gulf Coast tag team titles, and the U.S. tag team titles were mostly defended in Mobile and Pensacola, but were recognized in other towns in the territory. The Alabama heavyweight title was almost exclusively defended in Dothan, and the Mississippi heavyweight and Mississippi tag team titles were acknowledged in all of the Mississippi towns. In addition to those six championships, there were at least eight other titles, all of which were specific to one city. You have the Panama City heavyweight title, the City of Mobile heavyweight title, the City of Pensacola heavyweight title, the City of Gulfport tag team titles, the City of Hattiesburg tag team titles, the City of Laurel Tag Team Titles, the City of Meridian Tag Team Titles, and the City of Pascagoula Tag Team Titles. Whew. So you might think they spent a lot of money making uh, so many championship belts, but they didn't. Because at least the citywide tag team titles did not have belts. Instead, they had jackets. Wow. Yes. Jackets, eat your heart out, Augusta, Georgia. 
And while I'm not sure this was always the case there, at times they would run a storyline where if one team could simultaneously hold all the jackets, they would get a cash bonus. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so with so many titles, there were a lot of title changes. Uh, Between the six main titles uh, acknowledged in the territory, not including those city-specific ones, there were a total of 46 title changes in 1971. So that's an average of over seven and a half title changes for each title during the year, meaning they're changing, you know, more than every other month. Wow. Um, You know, Gulf Coast and the Ghoulist Territory were probably the two fastest paced territories in the early 70s. And the one thing they both had in common was they had multiple TVs and not just one main TV bicycled around or a couple of TVs. They had, you know, at least a half dozen different TVs, each airing in a different market and each market having its own unique titles. So there's always something going on and it's really hard to, you know, it's almost overwhelming to keep track of it all. But we do our best at charting the territories to do that. And you can see the fruits of our labor at chartingtheterritories.com. We also have two books currently available, one covering Leor and the Gurk's territory from 1971 to 1973, and the other covering it from 1974 to 1976. You can find them on Amazon or order them directly from our website. Uh, On Amazon, just search for Charting the Territories Al Getz. And if you order them off our site, chartingtheterritories.com, I will autograph it for you. And later this year, we will be releasing our third book, this one looking at the Heart of America, also known as Central States Territory, from 1971 to 1973. And as we keep charting these territories, John, you and I learn new things on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And at the end of every episode, we each share one of those things uh, in a segment called This Month I Learned. So, John, Mm -hmm. what did you learn? So, a lot of the time I, I enjoy watching, reading, researching about wrestling in order to, to help myself relax. I find, I find wrestling to be a lovely escape from the stresses of everyday life. Man, we are opposites in that regard. Um, but, but sometimes I find myself needing to escape from wrestling. So I have to find something else to find on the television to watch that I find relaxing. So lately... I've been watching this series, uh, The Food That Built America. Uh, I think it originally aired on the History Channel, but you can watch it. You could watch it on Hulu. Uh, while watching the show, uh, I was thinking I wasn't going to hear anything about wrestling. But this month I learned that Benihana, the Japanese restaurant, was founded by an ex-amateur wrestler. Uh, Rocky Aoki was his name, and he was a an excellent college athlete in Japan, thrown out of school for fighting, uh, then received several wrestling scholarship offers to go to school in the U.S., uh, goes to school Springfield College in Massachusetts, later to uh, C.W. Post College, Long Island. Uh, again, a lot of sources say that he competed for the Japanese Olympic wrestling team, but it is not true. Hmm. <laughs> I, I actually did... went to school right uh, right across the street from C.W. Post. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Huh. I'll keep that in mind for for Al gets trivia in the coming months. Um, But he did win the U.S. flyweight title in 1962, 63, and 64, 
and opened Benihana that same year with some help from his dad. Super interesting dude. Uh, was also on the crew of the first hot air balloon to cross the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Competitive powerboat racer, almost died in several powerboat crashes over the years. Founded Genesis, not the band, the porn magazine. I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, later charged with all kinds of insider trading. One of his kids is Steve Aoki, the celebrity DJ guy. <gasps> wow. Uh, he was once quoted as saying he had three kids with three women at the same time. Uh, <laughs> later in life, he was sued by four of his children at the same time. Like, if there's not already a documentary or book about this guy's life, Rocky Aoki, there absolutely 100% should be. I just find it fascinating that even when you're trying to avoid wrestling, it's, it's, there is some small tangential connection to it. It keeps pulling me back in. So, John, <laughs> what's your favorite condiment? Uh, ketchup. I love ketchup. Okay. Mine is mustard. Okay. And apparently it was also wrestler Stu Gibson's favorite condiment. Mm -hmm. This month I learned about a uh, an angle that took place in Victoria, Texas in January 1963, where during a match between Joe Christie and Stu Gibson, the two men brawled all over the arena outside the ring, even into the concession stand. What? Yes. And uh, during the third fall, uh, Christie left the ring, headed for the concession stand. Gibson, Stu Gibson, who was still bleeding from a cut received in the second fall, followed. Christie picked him up, put him on the counter, and dumped two big bowls of mustard on him. Christie returned to the ring, but Gibson didn't return inside of the 20 count, and Christie won the match. Wow. Where this gets slightly interesting and perhaps confusing is, uh, while trying to Google a little more about this to see if anyone else had heard this story, I found a post from uh, one of the legendary uh, pro wrestling historians, J. Michael Kenyon talking about a uh, a match that went to the concession room and involved mustard being poured on an opponent. But Kenyon's recollection was that it involved Stu Gibson and Danny McShane. And hmm. that McShane, um, and that Gibson actually won the match and he did this, he poured the mustard on McShane. And in the article I found, it's Christy pouring the mustard on Gibson. So the question is, is it possible that Kenyon, recalling something from 30 years earlier, you know, got the some of the facts wrong? Or did they possibly run another angle with mustard in the same town at some <laughs> yeah, point? Or perhaps did did um did they run it in another town and Kenyon mistakenly thought this one was in Victoria? I tried as best I could to see if I could find any other matches involving Stu Gibson and Danny McShane and mustard. I couldn't find anything, which again, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, like I said, Kenyon may have misremembered or there may have been a separate angle involving Stu Gibson and mustard. But what's interesting is that in Kenyon's recollection of this angle involving Stu Gibson and Danny McShane, the following week, Gibson refused to wrestle unless there was no mustard in the venue. Mustard ban from the building. And wow. that they literally were serving hot dogs without mustard. They they literally agreed to this and removed the mustard from the uh, condiment stand at the concession 
uh, concession area of this venue. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Wow. So, yeah, Stu Gibson couldn't quite cut. (laughs) I knew it. I knew you were going to. You knew that was coming. Oh, I knew it. So that's it for this month. As I mentioned (laughs) earlier, next month we're going to look at East Texas, uh, where three separate promoters ran towns using the same basic crew, but each was able to put their own unique spin on the product. From Paul Bosch in Houston to Joe Blanchard in San Antonio and Austin and Corpus Christi to Fritz von Erich in Dallas and Fort Worth, we'll look at the little differences as if we were Jules and Vincent from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> you know, also, uh, I don't know, John, if you watched All Out, but a lot of uh, a lot of the talk was about Powerhouse Hobbs and Miro uh, and how it turned into to big, meaty men slapping meat. Slapping meat, baby. And uh, if you like meat slapping, you would have loved to have been in East Texas in 1971 because you've got Wahoo McDaniel and Johnny Valentine Big oh, yeah. meaty men slapping meat and slapping each other. Oh, Sounds yeah. like a oh, lot boy. of fun, and we will take a look at that next month on Charting the Territories. Of course, if you want to uh, find more uh, about my musings about wrestling and baseball and music and life in general, follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. Uh, of course, a lot of the things we've talked about on this episode, I will put up images or links to on Twitter. Uh, sorry, on X. <laughs> the uh, application slash website formerly known as Twitter. And uh, John, where can our uh, where can our oh. listeners find you? You can find me on X uh, at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. Please follow me for excellent wrestling content all the time. Yeah, he puts up photos from his personal collection. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you also transferred some. Uh, reels from the UWA Luthez's Nashville based promotion in 1976. Put those up on YouTube. So follow, follow him on YouTube as well. What uh, What's the keyword to find you on the YouTube? Uh, John, my name, John, John Boucher. Boucher. Okay. Yeah, so, or if, yeah. you, if you search U, UWA wrestling, my stuff will be some of the first that comes up. So if you want to do it that way, you do it that way too. Yeah. And of course, the Charting the Territories podcast comes out on the second Thursday of the month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. Uh, so that does it for the September episode. Uh, like I said, next month, we are going to head west to East Texas, and we will see you guys there. John and I will see you next month. Spooky season, baby.